Now we have approached the last session of today's program, the Chinese economy rebalancing China. I think this is, uh, for many of you, this is the most widely expected session. So without further ado, I shall uh, pass the stage to Professor Kua, who will be the moderator for this session. Professor Kua, please. Uh, thank you, Frank, and welcome back, everyone, for this last event of our LSE China Development Forum. Uh, if those of you who are in the back, you, you've got a few more seconds to try and rush, scramble for a seat, so please feel free to do so. This is a, a panel discussion on China's economy, and I have asked each of the three panelists up here to make opening remarks of 10 minutes each, and then... I would like to open up a discussion. In the first instance, perhaps just among the panelists, but then I would like to invite the audience to participate in the question and answer session. Since all the panelists here are up here to debate, to discuss, and to disagree on China's economy, when you in the audience ask your questions afterwards, you don't have to say who the question is for. The understanding is it will be for everyone on the panel, either to agree and support or to disagree and take issue, but also just to add their insights. The three panelists are David Dollar on my left, who is Senior Fellow at the John L. Thornton Center at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., Nicholas Lardy, at the end of the table, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C., and Yukon Huang, Senior Associate at the Asia Program, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. Now, you will have noticed that all three of our panelists up here are not just based in the United States, but actually work in Washington, D.C. <laughs> actually, within just city blocks of each other, inside the Washington Beltway. They're here to discuss the state of China's economy. Now, very quickly, let me say, an initial reaction might be, well, of course, this makes sense. Because, after all, the United States is the central point of the global economy. And we're here to talk about policy adjustments in China. And Washington, D.C. establishes policy for the world economy. But then you quickly realize that can't be the reason these three distinguished scholars are up here. The world's economic center had dislodged from the Atlantic Ocean over 30 years ago, and as of last year, from the rise of China and the rest of East Asia, had already moved east of London, had moved east of Helsinki, had moved east of Bucharest, sits now in the Gulf, and very quickly, very soon, within the next generation, under some scenarios, will be located on the boundary between India and China. So it can't be that. 
Also, in terms of policy making, at times of crisis, through the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis, according to the IMF, it was actually China that added to the world economy three times what the United States did. So neither of these can be the reasons we've got scholars from Washington, D.C. speaking to us this afternoon about rebalancing China's economy. Indeed, if the world's policymaking center remains in Washington, D.C., that political policy global center will soon be 10 time zones distant from the center of the world economy. So, of course, no. The reason that three of these scholars are up here is because they are independent-minded, compelling, insightful voices that have reflected wisely and intelligently on China's economic and financial development for decades. They have recently written powerful pieces on financial development, on technology and innovation, and on real estate dynamics in China. If we accumulated their collective wisdom, we would see that right now I am fortunate enough to be up here on stage with over a century of expertise on China. It is that expertise that I want us now to turn to. The running order for this session is that David Dollar will open, followed by Nicholas Lari, and then Yukon will come in at the end to provide his insights. After that, I will turn to you, the audience, for your questions. So if you could join me in welcoming first the panel and then getting David to speak. David, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Danny. It's really a great pleasure to be here. Congratulations to the students who organized this really extraordinary conference. It's really a pleasure for me to be here. The topic is China's rebalancing. There's a lot of discussion about rebalancing. Just let me briefly tell you what it means to me. You know, China's economy has been growing very well for the last decade, last 20 years, last 30 years, whatever time period you want to take. But in recent years, I'm impressed that China's economy is requiring more and more investment in order to grow. So I see in recent years slowing total factor productivity growth and higher and higher investment rate rising up to 50% of GDP, which is really unprecedented in a big market economy. And I think the problem of that combination, investing so much with slowing productivity growth, is that you get sharply diminishing marginal returns. There's evidence of a declining return to capital in China. Or we could think of this in terms of the growing evidence of excess capacity in many areas, in housing, local government infrastructure, certain manufacturing sectors. So I really think this, this model of investing half of GDP with low productivity growth is unsustainable. And so I think of China needing a set of reforms that in the first instance will stimulate more productivity growth and innovation. Okay, and I think most, most Chinese participants, I hope we're going to be nodding, China's economy needs more innovation, uh, productivity growth, and then more efficient investment. And I predict that if you get that, then the investment rate is going to come down. Part of the problem with inefficiency is investing so much. And then the consumption rate is going to need to rise in order to balance that. Uh, and in fact, this is a great opportunity because this will make people's lives better in China. If I were giving a long lecture, I would then move into my favorite four areas of reform. And I'm just going to list them. Hukou reform, 
financial liberalization, opening up the service sectors, and changing the incentives for local government. But I respect that we've been asked to start with 10 minutes, and sitting through a lot of today's event, I've decided what I'd like to do is give you a slightly more personal take on a couple of these reform areas. So I'm just going to take two of them and, and give you a slightly more personal take. I lived in Beijing for nine years, working for the World Bank and then for the U.S. Treasury, and that ended six months ago. Uh, my family and I, we love living in Beijing for a lot of different reasons. Uh, we just reached a point where it was time to move back. So about six months ago, we moved back to Washington, and you know, my children are at undergraduate colleges in the United States. So coming home, it just hit me powerfully, a couple, some of the differences between China and the U.S. You know, many of the differences I think of as being very much in China's favor, uh, respect for education, for example. Uh, but a couple of things that really struck me I'd like to mention to you. So moving back to the United States, within a couple of days, I had to buy two new cars. So I just went into a dealer, and I put a down payment on my credit card and drove away with a brand-new car. Uh, my children got us connected to high-speed Internet, and we were, always, we were all uh, really extraordinarily relieved to have very fast, very reliable Internet, which we quickly used to order a big flat-screen TV that was delivered to our house within 48 hours. And once we connected that up, we were able to download all kinds of movies and entertainment. Now, for Chinese friends, you, you won't necessarily go as, want to go as far as America's gone in creating uh, this kind of environment, but it was very striking to me, you know, thinking back to my nine years in Beijing, you know, for example, when we bought a car in Beijing, I had to take a suitcase full of 100 yuan renminbi notes across <laughs> Beijing in a taxi cab uh, in order to buy my automobile. Uh, internet, of course, very slow in China, you know, probably because of various controls. You know, common to be watching BBC or CNN, and then certain words are mentioned, and then bam, all of a sudden the TV goes black. Uh, we all know very limited number of movies that you can watch. I only went to the movies once or twice in nine years in Beijing. And my Chinese is mama hu hu, so it's not just, it's not just a language issue. It's that there's just not a lot of, of, of media entertainment available. Now, now, there really is a substantive point here. And again, I'm not suggesting you want to go as far as the United States. But the substantive point is that all of my examples involve the modern service sectors, what I call the modern service sectors. So I see China as having very efficient, competitive, largely private manufacturing sector, which has been the engine of China's growth. But I see the modern service sectors in China as being uncompetitive. Chinese themselves often refer to the Lungduan, the uh, monopoly sectors. And these are sectors dominated by big state enterprises, so I'm thinking of financial services, logistics, media. I would also add airlines. I have a lot of great airline stories if I had more time to talk. You know. And so these are, as I said, the modern telecom I have forgotten to mention. These are the modern service sectors. As China pursues this rebalancing, manufacturing will be relatively less important, and the service sectors will be more important. They're clearly the main source of employment already, and that's likely to be more true in the future. So I'm suggesting there's a need to open up those service sectors to private investment, including foreign investment. You know, the OECD does a rating of how open different economies are, not just OECD members, but also big developing countries. And China is by far the most closed 
of any of these countries rated by OECD in terms of trade and investment in the services sectors. So it would be you know, going along with global norms for China to open up these sectors to domestic private investment, foreign private investment, get more competition, get more productivity growth. Now, I lead with this, this uh, issue because I think it is a very important one, but should also speak to all the young Chinese here because college-educated people are going to go to work in the modern services sectors. There's not going to be a lot of employment in manufacturing sectors for college-educated people. You're going to go to work in the modern services sector. So this is the development that China really needs uh, in order to meet its future labor market demands, but also uh, to generate more productivity growth and make a contribution to this rebalancing. Now, the other issue I just want to mention very briefly, because it also struck me returning to the U.S., my other favorite issue is HUCO reform. And I certainly don't have time to go into detail, but I think people are familiar. The HUCO system limits mobility. It keeps about half the population in the rural area, even if you count the migrants who've moved to cities. And then it puts the migrants at a disadvantage uh, in terms of employment, in terms of bringing their family, getting social services. So again, returning to the United States, it's very striking you know, how in, difficult, in a interesting economic times, People move up and people pick up and move to locations where they can fly and find employment. And this has always been an important source of productivity growth in the U.S. And for China, I think it can be a source of productivity growth to have more rural urban migration and just more moving around in general uh, as people move to the high productivity locations. The issues I mentioned were definitely taken up in the third plenum resolution, but I would say that they're just some initial small steps indicated by the third plenum resolution. And for me, an important question will be, does this new leadership really follow through on important structural measures like opening up the service sectors and HUCO reform? Thank you very much. Nicholas. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to follow David and, and talk about the third plenum and how I think it will contribute to the rebalancing that has been under discussion in many, many dimensions all day. And I really want to talk about uh, three areas, three factor prices uh, that were highlighted in the plenum de- decision that are going to be reformed. And I'll start with the exchange rate. Uh, the document and the discussion uh, in November clearly indicated that China's going, plans uh, tentatively to reduce the intervention in the foreign exchange market, which should lead to, not should, will lead under current circumstances to more appreciation of the uh, currency, the RMB, and that will have a very important effect on rebalancing. It will reduce the profitability in the tradable goods sector. Uh, the tradable goods for China is overwhelmingly uh, manufacturers. If you look at tradables, almost all of the import competing industries are in manufacturing, and 60 to 70 percent of the exports of China today are, are manufactured goods. So if the currency on average appreciates a little bit more, then the profitability of tradable goods production will tend to come down a little bit, and that means there'll be less uh, investment in manufacturing. The relative profitability of the services sector will rise, and that should lead to greater growth of services, which is completely Uh, consistent with what David was talking about. So I think it will not only take more competition in that sector, which is extremely important, deregulation, some people call it, but it will also probably take uh, some uh, change in exchange rate policy. 
This will also contribute if we have greater services sector growth. As David has already mentioned, the services sector is more labor-intensive. So we would expect as services grow more rapidly that the wage share of GDP would tend to rise, uh, and that will tend to lead to more consumption. And the more consumption part of the story is very, very important for sustaining uh, long-term economic growth. So that's the first factor price change that I think is important. The second one I want to talk about is the interest rate. Uh, There was a a very clear decision to liberalize interest rates gradually. I think the background here is that China has had a relatively low interest rate policy since around 2003-2004. If you look at the real deposit rates uh, from the mid-90s up to about 2003, they were positive, about 3.0 percentage points. Uh, In the last uh, decade, they've been on average negative. So the real uh, deposit rate for households, uh, for savers, has gone down. And most of that lower cost of funds has been passed on to borrowers. That is, there's still enough competition in the banking system that the lower cost of funds has been passed on to borrowers. So uh, David has already pointed out that China's investment rate is extraordinarily high. And there are a number of reasons for that, but I think one of them is that uh, the, the cost of funds has come down. It, on average, has only been about 300 basis points uh, over the last 10 years. That's very low in an economy growing at 8, 9, uh, 10 percent. If the interest rate, uh, I believe when rates are liberalized, the interest rate will go up. The reason I say that is that we've got lots of evidence in the deregulated part of the financial sector. Interest rate deposit rates are much higher than they are in the banking system. If you look at Tencent and Alipay and all these new online uh, investment opportunities, uh, they're paying uh, interest rates up to 10 times on demand deposits, what what the banks pay. Uh, We see the same thing in wealth management products, trust products, and so forth. The interest rates are higher. So I believe when interest rates are deregulated, if other things don't change dramatically, that interest rates will tend to go up. That will lead to a reduction in the investment share of GDP, which, as David has already highlighted, is one of the big structural problems. If the interest rate goes up 100 or 150 or 200 basis points, a lot of projects that look profitable, if you could borrow money for 3% in real terms, won't be profitable and they will not be undertaken. The second big advantage of interest rate liberalization, when rates go up, deposit rates will go up, Household income will rise. Household income from savings deposits has declined significantly as a share of GDP over the last decade, even though the stock of savings deposits as a share of GDP has gone up. So again, that will help to contribute to the growth of consumption uh, in the same way that the exchange rate reform will also lead to more uh, consumption. Now, the third one I want to talk about in this list of factor price reforms is is energy. Um, China has very low prices for energy. If you take, uh, I recently did a calculation for the return on assets of the coal sector, the power generation sector, and the power distribution sector. Now, as the price of coal changes and other things change, some sectors make more money at the expense of other sectors. But if you take the average over the last few years, over the last seven or eight years, the average rate of return on these three activities combined is about 2.5%. This is extraordinarily low. It's way less than the cost of capital. And it reflects the kind of price controls that uh, still exist in the energy sector. I very much agree with David that China is, to a considerable degree, a market economy. Almost all goods and goods prices are 
uh, set by supply and demand in the market. But energy prices, sometimes the price of coal, certainly the on-grid price, the price that the generators get paid when they deliver to the distribution system, and the price that the distributors of electricity, the grids, can charge to consumers, those prices are still controlled. So, again, if prices are liberalized, I think the price of energy will go up somewhat. The subsidy that is implicit in the current arrangements to producers uh, will fall. China is very unusual uh, in the share of energy being consumed in the industrial sector is extremely high. It's about three-quarters. Uh, it's very, very different from advanced industrial economies where the households are the major consumer of electric power. So if the price of electricity goes up, uh, the producer subsidy that currently exists will go down, so the profits of the manufacturing sector will tend to fall, and that will make the relative profitability in the services sector go up. Now, if you've noticed what I've talked about, all, thing, all three of these factor price reforms, whether we're talking about the exchange rate, the interest rate, or the price of electricity, all of them are going to tend to reduce profitability in the industrial sector and improve profitability in the services sector. It's going to lead to a shift of, it will do two things. It will, first of all, reduce the overall rate of investment and will lead to a shift more towards uh, services. Now, let me just close by saying why do I think all this is going to happen? Uh, well, as I've already said, I think China is largely a market economy. Most investment today is undertaken by private firms that are very sensitive to the cost of capital. Uh, and the plenum document also said quite explicitly at several points that markets will become the decisive factor in the allocation of resources. I think they already are the decisive factor over much of the economy, but it will become even more so. Uh, and they also talked about opening up the services sector to competition, as, as David mentioned. So um, I think these reforms will be very positive. I think they will help to rebalance the economy. I think they will lead to a reduction in China's current account surplus, which is still a little over 2%. It will lead to a rise in the consumption share of GDP. It will lead to a reduction in the investment share of GDP. And I don't think it need. I think this combination creates the possibility, no guarantees, but the possibility that China will be able to sustain relatively rapid economic growth for at least the next five years or so. By relatively rapid, I don't mean returning to the double-digit rates in the middle of the last decade uh, when China did grow up more than 10 percent for three or four years, but I mean uh, something in the 7, seven to 8 percent range, uh, which I think is still extraordinarily rapid growth for an economy. Uh, at the stage of economic development where China finds itself today. So I'm very optimistic about the plenum. When people ask me, how do I like the document, I say it's a 10. So what we need to watch for is how quickly it gets implemented. Thank you, Nicholas. Yukon. I'm speaking last because I'm the contrarian here. And when I left China uh, many years ago as a World Bank director, I was delighted that David Dollar actually succeeded me. And the interesting thing is about why I agree with actually both what Nick says in terms of reforms and changes, and I agree fully with what David says about the policies that reformers are needed. I differ in terms of what I see as the nature of the Chinese economy. I actually differ with the title of the session. Let's go back to the description in the booklet. It talks about rebalancing China. It talks about Deng Xiaoping's reforms, the need to move away from an investment-driven development model, 
It talks about suppressed interest rates, and Nick's talked about the excessively low. And it talks about the need to rebalance if China is to move forward. And what I want to mention is, what if it's actually the opposite? That for China to actually move forward, it needs to be unbalanced? And let me just talk a little bit about this. And let me start off with, how did this all begin? It began with Deng Xiaoping, who I really admire. admire. And I call Deng Xiaoping the unbalanced reformer. <laughs> he started all this. He concentrated investment along the coast. He spurred industrial expansion. He pushed for exports. China grew rapidly for several decades. He succeeded, but I would call him the unbalanced reformer. Now, some people who have listened to me call me the unbalanced economist. <laughs> because I write articles which talk about the virtues of unbalanced growth. And let me start with the interest rate. Because the first presumption out there is that the, these imbalances are because China's interest rates are too low. Are China's interest rates too low? They're the highest of any major economy, by far. Now, people then say, well, it's fallen a lot. But it's fallen a lot everywhere. People say it's negative in real terms, but it's negative everywhere. Now, I live in Beijing. I live in Washington, D.C. I have a bank account in the Bank of China. I have a bank account in the Bank of America. I have all my money in the Bank of China. <laughs> the Bank of China pays me 3.5% without any terms or conditions. It guarantees it fully. In the U.S., the Bank of America pays me 0.1%. It only guarantees up to 250000 And then my major concern as an economist is what's going to happen to the exchange rate. The renminbi is going to appreciate. The dollar is going to depreciate. I have all my money in China. Now, suppose China raises its interest rates. I'll put more money in China. And I actually have a hard time doing it because there are controls about letting money come in. Now, if you look at what's happening in the reserves in China, it is piling up money. Because those who can get money in China realize that if they put the money in China, they get higher interest rates and multiples higher. In fact, borrowers in China are trying to actually borrow from overseas because in China they have to pay 10% whereas they can go to outside markets, they pay 6%. So why do we think interest rates in China are too low? They're actually too high. Let's go to the next point, unbalanced growth. By that, we mean the consumption of the share of GDP falls dramatically for long periods of time. China is share of consumption of GDP, the lowest in the world. It's fallen by 15 percentage points over the last 15, 20 years. Unbalanced growth is actually fairly unique as a phenomenon for a country over long periods. There are very few countries whose growth rates or growth macro aggregates, the decline in consumption, the increase in investment, this imbalance has persisted for decades. Very few. It turns out that the only ones which are unbalanced are the only ones who succeed. And those economies which are balanced don't grow. So why do we think that rebalancing is good? The success cases in Asia, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Singapore, consumption as a share of GDP fell by 30, 40 percentage points over decades before they became more balanced. 
And you can see that China's pattern looks very similar. And it's going to turn, but probably not for another seven or eight years. You also notice, of course, that China's curve may be the same slope, but it seems to be lower. And that lower is actually because of the statistical anomalies, but I don't want to get into it. If you adjust for it, its line is exactly the same as Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and Singapore. And the only countries which went from low to middle to high. If you want to become a high-income country, you should have unbalanced growth, not balanced growth. Now, if you go back 150 years, which country has been the most unbalanced and the most successful? The United States. Consumption as a share of GDP fell by 50 percentage points between 1900 and 1950. By 1950, the U.S. was the world's superpower. These are the only countries which have unbalanced growth, and these are the only countries that succeeded. So why do we argue for rebalancing? People then said, well, unbalanced growth leads to repression of consumption. Consumption is too low. People can't consume as much. But look at this chart. Economies with unbalanced growth, a fall in the share of consumption and GDP, are the economies where consumption grows the fastest. Economies which are balanced, consumption grows the slowest. So if you actually want consumption to increase, if you actually want a consumption-driven growth model, you want unbalanced growth. But everyone says the opposite. They say that we want a consumption-driven growth. Growth should be more balanced. But it's actually the opposite. Now, I want to very quickly get to what I think is the next very interesting issue, and the third plan gets into it. And if you pick up the Financial Times or any major newspaper, the big issue is China's a debt problem. Debt as a share of GDP is over 200%. It's risen by 50 percentage points over the last five years. Every country where debt as a share of GDP, the credit as a share of GDP, increases by 50 percentage points in four or five years has a financial crisis. It crashes. So people then conclude it's going to crash. And why should China be any different? If, however, you look at the details, you look at the debt for corporates, you look at the debt for government, you look at the debt for local governments, you look at the debt for households, and you break it down and look at the actual situation on a micro basis, you don't see a problem. It looks manageable. It's serious but manageable. So why is it that the macro aggregates are so alarming? Fitch basically says, crisis inevitable. Shadow banking is driving China to the brink of disaster. But why is it that the micro numbers look like catastrophe, but the, excuse me, the macro numbers show a catastrophe, but the micro numbers do not? And the answer is right here. You're an economist, and if you're an economist, you know there's a difference between fixed asset investment as a share of GDP, this line, this top line, and gross fixed capital formation as a share of GDP. Fixed asset investment is investment in physical assets, including land and assets. Gross fixed capital formation, which is the definition of investment in GDP, excludes land values and transfer of assets. Now, these two concepts are both investments. And you will see that until 2002 and 2003, they increased at the same rate. They're virtually undistinguishable. And then in 2002, 3, 
they diverged. Fixed asset investments a share of GDP rose to 70% of GDP. Gross fixed capital formation increased to 45 or 50. That's the number we talk about is the investment in GDP. Now, what is happening? Credit. Credit finances fixed asset investment because it's the price of what you're doing. It's the price of land. It's the price of assets that draws credit. And the interesting thing is why is credit going out there but growth is not? So you read articles about something's wrong in China. Credit is expanding, but growth is not taking off. So there's a problem because in the past when credit expanded, growth expanded. So people say China's got a problem. Credit expansion is not leading to growth. The credit impulse is dying. There is an issue. And the answer is very simply the price of land. This is the real price of land in the country. It's increased more than threefold in real terms. Nominal terms, more than fourfold. In Beijing, sixfold. Now, if land is really worth this and it's being transacted, money is going out there, is financing this land transfer and activity. But that's a transfer of land. It does not increase GDP. But it does increase fixed asset investment. So this credit rise doesn't increase GDP, but it does translate into a higher share of credit to GDP, which causes alarm bells. Is this a sign of financial instability in a crisis? No. It's actually a sign of financial deepening, and it's actually a positive thing. It's a positive thing rather than a negative thing, although every newspaper will call it a negative thing. Now, why is it a positive thing? Think about the following. Suppose I go to my garage and I find a Mona Lisa. And I was poor yesterday, but today I found a Mona Lisa and it's worth $50 million. And I go out and I sell it. Somebody borrows money, they buy it. Credit expands by $50 million. And I'm wealthier. And he's got something fantastic. GDP doesn't change. But the credit in the system went up by $50 million because it was an asset which was undiscovered and now valuable. So the question is, is land in China worth this increase? And of course, this is a big question. But if you look at the indicators in countries, it probably is. I used to work on Russia before I worked on China. What do they have in common? Land was state-owned. Then it was privatized. In China, privatized around 1998, a resale market a private market for land started in 2004 because it takes time. Land prices then go up sixfold. Russia, same thing. Privatized the land housing, took a time to settle down. Prices of land in Moscow increased six times in six years. Go to Delhi, different issue. They don't have this kind of issue of state and private. The price of land in Delhi went up 10 times in 10 years. Go to Taipei, other places. I don't know, but relative to other countries, land is not necessarily too expensive. It's financial deepening, not a crisis. Now, let me just finish by one quick question. If debt is not the problem, which I don't think it is, what does China need to do? And the answer, as I say, is not necessarily to sort of like curb investment, 
certainly not necessary to increase consumption. Consumption in China is growing at 8% a year in real terms, the highest in the world. So why would we want to argue that consumption should increase any faster? It cannot, actually. What we want investment to be is we want it to be better. We want it to be more efficient. Not necessarily lower, but just better. And what do we want to do? And I would agree with David and I would agree with Nick in terms of the kinds of policies you want. But the one thing I want to emphasize is it's urbanization. Now, why is urbanization linked to productivity and growth? Because we know, of course, that if we just move a whole bunch of people in the city, it's not going to necessarily make you grow any better. So if we don't want to have big cities just for the sake of big cities or everybody in the city, the key, the key number in China, the one that really matters, is the ratio of urban incomes to rural. It's 3.2. It tells you that people in the cities are more productive than the people in rural areas. 3.2 is the highest in the world. The gap in productivity between cities and rural areas is the highest in the world. And it's the highest in the world because it's been repressed. People cannot move around as easily. So you have this rapid urbanization, people moving, and China is now 52% urban. But it should be 60, it should be 70. And if it does, this will add one or one and a half percentage points to China's productivity and growth. And that'll keep it at seven, seven and a half if they do it right. Now, I just have one last comment. Take India. What is the difference between India and China? The urban to rural income differential in India is 1.8. In China is 3.2. India's urbanization ratio is 38%. China is 52. India's urbanization ratio has not changed for a decade. Its cities are not productive. There's no reason for people to, be able to go to Delhi because it costs more to live in Delhi, but they can't get paid anymore in Delhi, so why should they move? So in the third plenum, if they can get it right, if they can get the urbanization consistently increasing, but make it more efficient, make the investment higher paying, as David says, do hukou reform, because migrants save twice as much as non-migrants, Consumption will increase and China will grow much faster. Thank you. Thank you, Yukon. So before I open to the floor, let me just note that just when you thought that the economists up here were just in for a massive love-in, you realize that once again, economics shows how it is capable of its greatest experts disagreeing with each other. <laughs> Let me just point out a connection between some of David's work and some of the things that Yukon has just said. I don't know if you'd agree with me, David. Before David left Beijing, he and other members of the World Bank put together a report on China's reform prospects. Uh, looking forward to 2030. One of the large ideas in that report was the notion of the middle income trap, an idea that has already appeared in the discussion today. One of the warnings that this report put out was that China was still firmly in the middle of this middle income group of countries. It was still middle income trapped and the prospects for escaping the middle income trap did not look good. 
because of the 110 or so economies that already reached middle-income status, only 13 had succeeded in escaping. Actually, though, when you look at those 13, they break down into three groups. The first group is the pigs' economies. And it's difficult to think of the pigs' economies today as being the successes that we want to celebrate. The second group is Mauritius, Equatorial Guinea, Puerto Rico, and Israel a disparate group of states, two small African ones, two close to the United States politically, but beyond that, not very much commonality. What of the remaining group? That remaining group turns out to be Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan. Well, gosh, those are exactly the East Asian economies that Yukon just pointed to as being unbalanced and therefore successful. So that little piece of empirical unpacking suggests that actually in the empirical evidence, there's a lot to this idea about unbalance being continuing to be an ingredient for impetus and success. All right, now with that as a major divide across these different groups, but also with lots of points of agreement, can I invite the audience now to address questions to the panel? Let me just say before we begin, wait for the microphone to come to you. Very quickly identify yourself. By all means, feel free to set a context for your question. Don't give a mini lecture to the panel. Ask your question and direct it to the entire it will be directed to the entire panel. So if we could begin, the gentleman up here, wait for the microphone that comes to you. Thank you. I'm Donald. I'm a third-year economist, uh, third-year economic student at the LSE. I have a question with particular to the credit-to-GDP ratio. How do you differentiate that the like, in credit, the huge rise in credit-to-GDP ratio is due to financial deepening or loosening of credit standards? From a lot of anecdotes, we see the shadow banking system, wealth management products, etc., seems to indicate a loosening of um, credit standards. Whereas uh, Dr. Yukon has pointed out that it seems to be a final deepening. Do you have more evidence and elaborate more on your point? Thank you. Thank you. Let's take two, let's take two or three questions. Arthur, up, up here. Uh, I understand that Yukon would be in favor of a, a, a credit expansion in order to finance the housing boom. So your question again was that is the panel be in favor of a credit in favor of credit expansion credit expansion in order to finance housing boom? Okay, one last question before I turn over to the panel. Uh, the gentleman up there. Thanks for the talk. I I have a profound pessimism about China's future growth, and I would like to express my opinion and may, um, want you to uh, uh, make comments on this opinion. So I think to improve productivity of China, the, uh, the cities has to be more accommodative to uh, rural areas, uh, the people from the rural areas, to make it more livable. The cost of living has to go down. But the kind of investment, uh, investment in, in, in infrastructure, education, or healthcare. Uh, cannot be made by the central government because they do not have the incentive to make that kind of investment. Uh, so I don't see a political change there, and I don't see the investment coming. So I have a grim view about China's future growth. Okay, thank you very much. If we could begin with Yukon and then move around in reverse order. I think the question was, how do we know that the credit expansion is actually positive financial deepening and not 
causing what I call financial crisis? And the answer, of course, is I don't know fully. What I'm struck by, and I'm sure writing a paper on this topic because I've read through everything, 99% of the pieces out there say this is a financial crisis and a problem. But I've struck that when I go down to the micro detail, I can't find that problem. Something, something's wrong here, actually. Now, it's the price of land. Now, if that land value is real, you need money in the system to actually realize that value and let it be traded, developed, expanded. That's financial deepening. Assets are beginning to find their value, and the system has to allow it to find its value. Now, here's something which is kind of interesting. Credit, China has this concept of total social financing. It throws in bank credit. It throws in shadow finance, shadow lending financing. It gets to a number like 210 or 220% of GDP. It's a very broad concept. Suppose you throw out shadow financing and concentrate only on formal bank lending credit. Bank lending as a share of GDP, the credit through the normal banking system, as a share of GDP is actually declined. It's shadow banking that's zoomed. And most of that shadow banking, done by private firms, banks, individuals, a very large share of it is going into these kinds of property and asset transfers and development. Logical, of course. Interest rates in that area are high. People have to find high returns. They see it in this land and this property transfer. They see the value. Now, if that value is there, then what we see is actually a very good thing. Now, if it turns out that these land values are ephemeral and and it is a bubble, it's like the Mona Lisa. I thought I had a $50 million Mona Lisa there. I sold to the guy. It turned out it was a fake. Okay. That guy's going to go bankrupt, right? <laughs> but if it's real, that guy's going to go resell it, and he'll be fine. Now, if you look at the indicators, and people will say, well, gosh, I own an apartment in Beijing. I bought it in 2006. I was thinking about selling it now because I think there's a bubble coming. I'm worried about it, right? <laughs> when I go out and I actually look for something of equivalent value, comfortable to my apartment and, and newer, it costs twice as much as mine. Not cheaper. Well, it's not even the same. It's much more. I don't know whether there's a bubble, but I'm actually becoming closer in recognizing that land income ratios in China are less than they are in Australia, Taipei, India, Russia, Okay, And then think about it, 1.3 trillion people in a country where the arable land is less than normal. A rapidly growing economy of 7 or 8, 9 percent. This is a country where land values are very, very high. How high, I don't know. Thank you. Nicholas, can I invite you to come in at this point? Uh, yes. Um, I... I would make the basic argument that what what China really needs is liberalization of factor prices. I mean, we can sit up here and argue all day about whether the interest rates are too high or too low. What we need is a central bank getting rid of the ceiling on deposit rates, and we'll see what happens. Would the interest rates go up or down? I think 
I've cited some evidence that I think they'd go up. UConn thinks they'd go down. But I would argue that we ought to get rid of government policies that distort factor markets, including interest in land. I think it's quite interesting that UConn is against the HUCO system because it represses people, but he thinks financial repression is fine. <laughs> so I, I, I'm in favor of more market forces in China, and then we'll see what happens to interest rates. We'll see where people want to move and where they want to live. I am very worried that financial repression is causing excessive investment in housing, which ultimately could have big negative consequences for China. Why are people investing so much? And first of all, I think it's housing, not land. If you do the math on urban housing, the land portion of the housing cost is less than 10 percent. You know, you're putting up a high-rise with lots of apartments in it. So the land cost is not really a significant factor. It's the, it's the condo or the, or the co-op or whatever you want to call it. It's the flat. And those prices are going up. And why are those prices going up? Well, look at the financial system. It's hard to get your money offshore. The stock market is not viewed as a good, a viable long-term asset class. The return on deposits in the bank has, on average has been negative for more than a decade. So people are piling into housing. China's investing twice as much in housing today as the United States did at the peak in 2005 before things went, went south. So I think it's a huge distortion of resource allocation. I, I'm like you, I don't, I don't know whether it's a bubble either, but they're certainly investing, I think, excessively. Maybe the, maybe the price of land and all these things, is, it's really all going to work out. But I would be much more comfortable if we had liberalization of factor prices, including those for land and labor and capital. Thank Can you. I react to the third comment? Yes, question? by all means. Yeah. Um, Any question? The, the, you know, the third uh, question, more of a comment, was talking about city governments welcoming people, and, and I think of that being part of their incentives. So first I want to reiterate, I do think China's investing too much, and I don't agree that the earlier East Asian economies invested 50 percent of GDP. Singapore at a pretty late stage did, but at this stage of development, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan – they all had more like 35% of GDP in investment. So China's taken that up a significant uh, level, additional level, which I think is a problem. And I think this young man has put his finger on one aspect of it that hadn't come up yet. Local government officials in China are rewarded for generating investment and growth, and they're very good at that. You know, they're not rewarded for cleaning up the air. So, you know, those of us who lived in Beijing for a long time are familiar with the quite uh, difficult air situation. They're not necessarily rewarded for providing good public education and health, all of which shows up as consumption in the national account. So I do think the incentives for local government are one reason why the system is biased to investment and biased away from consumption. And he raises a good question. Without political reform, you know, can China really fully transform its growth model? Thank you. Uh, let's go another round of questions. So in the, in the middle... The, actually, first, the gentleman in the suit. See, dressing well really gets you noticed. So, <laughs> the gentleman in the suit. Thank you, Professor Kwa. Um, my question may concern uh, the topic of global imbalances, too. 
um, you know, follow this topic. Um, I don't see any conflict between our experts' views on the interest rates because domestically there has been negative uh, real interest rate. Um, and internationally, uh, it's okay that, that China has higher nominal interest rates than the rest of the world due to capital control. Maybe in 10 years' time, when capital control goes away, um, Yukon is going to uh, get higher interest rates from Bank of America and lower from Bank of China. So my question is, uh, do you see it as a favorable policy to, in the long run, eliminate capital control, or should China keep it in case of a crisis such as 2008 repeat uh, as an emergency break on potential financial capital out- outflow? Thank you. Okay, thank you. A couple more questions. Just two rows behind you. Thank you, Professor. Um, my name is Steve Fong, and I'm currently an A-level student. I'm going to study LC this summer, half this summer. So hope my economics is fine. Um, both of your, uh, both of Professor Donner and Professor Yukon mentioned about the reform of the HUCO system. Well, my question is, what's the reason for us to have a kind of reform in a kind of hukou system? My, I'm actually in favor of restoring or keeping the hukou system. The first reason, as you can mention, as um, in India, urbanization process doesn't, doesn't actually happen much. It's probably because of this kind of mobility of labor, which makes the kind of Whenever countryside people move into the cities, they drive the wage down, which creates no wage differentials between two regions. So actually, it actually slows down the urbanization process. And the second point is about the culture issue. According to traditional, uh, traditional theory of kind of um, the wage analysis, people go where? Go to the place where there's a higher wage, they go there. So actually, when, when we predict there's kind of an oversupply of labor in the cities, actually the people themselves should be expected to come back to the countryside because countryside may end up having a higher wage than the city areas. But this theory is actually unlikely to be true because normally Chinese people themselves, when they went to the city areas, no matter how hard the situation becomes, they, they don't want to go back to the countryside because they want to be kind of pretend they are really having a very good life. So actually the only result of causing this is actually the slums in the, in the cities. So actually by keeping the hukou system can actually ensure the unbalanced uh, status in China, which actually promotes Chinese economy. Thank you. Thank you. One last question on this round. Okay, I'll, I'll, let, the, I'll let you think about your remaining questions. Meanwhile, can I turn to now in the reverse order? Come back. You should have put your hand up earlier. I'll come back to you. Uh, David, can you begin with that? Uh, do you want to do the capital controls? Okay. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me give my view on the hukou issue. Um, the, you know, as, as Yukon pointed out, China has an extraordinarily high difference between the rural income and urban income. And that's both leads to higher inequality, so that's a social issue. Uh, but it's also an efficiency issue in that China's losing a growth opportunity. Now, lots of developing countries have big, messy cities. We know that. But you can also look at some neighbors who've had a very successful process. You know, South Korea did not have the same kind of restrictions that China has. And South Korea actually had a faster rural-urban migration than China has had, which is what you'd expect without restrictions. In South Korea, when it was at China's current stage of development, 
had about a 70% urbanization rate. China, including the migrants, is about 50%. So a large number of people are likely to want to move to cities if you free up the hukou system, and you'll get a big productivity boost uh, from people moving. And South Korea and other Asian economies have shown this can be consistent with full employment. And what you found in South Korea was that urban wages were ahead of rural wages, but by a much smaller differential than you have in China today. And then where they ended up is with a relatively small population that chooses to stay and be high-income farmers and have uh, quite a bit of land per person and quite a bit of income per person. So there's successful examples around the world. Uh, I, I just think this restricting people, you know, forcing so many people to be poor in the countryside, it's going to be a social problem for China, and it, it's really going to have uh, inefficient. It's really going to contribute to uh, lack of growth opportunities in the future. Nicholas, do you want to come in on this? Um, I think I'll come in on the capital control question. I think, first of all, I share very much the premise or what I understood to be the premise of your question and is that you can, you can have significant interest rate differentials across countries when you have uh, capital controls, and, and uh, China certainly does have some significant capital controls. Even Yukon, who's very well connected, can't quite get all his money into the Bank of China, apparently. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, but your question was, what about the long run? Uh, should, should China be moving towards a more liberalized capital account? I certainly think in the long run, China should liberalize its capital account, but I, I do subscribe to what I think is the conventional wisdom. I don't know, maybe, maybe others up here would disagree. But I think the sequencing is very, very important, and I think China needs to have uh, a much more liberalized uh, exchange rate system with much less government intervention. I, I think... Uh, moving towards uh, capital account convertibility before you have a, more, a, a much more flexible exchange rate is a, a recipe for potential uh, major problems. I think China also needs much deeper, uh, more efficient uh, domestic uh, markets, capital markets. Um, China basically, well, it would be a slight exaggeration to say, but they basically don't have uh, a capital market. They basically, as, as Yukon's numbers point out, they have a very bank-dominated financial system. The amount of corporate bonds is extremely small, and uh, the equity market is in a very, uh, shall we say, early stage of development, I would say. So the sequence has to, and, and of course, interest rate liberalization. So to me, the sequence is liberalized uh, market-oriented interest rates, liberalized uh, market-oriented exchange rate, the development of a deeper, very well-regulated uh, capital market, and then uh, after you have all that in place, you can um, move much more rapidly. I mean, you can move a little way towards relaxing capital controls along the way, but basically you can't. Uh, the, the, the pace and the sequence, uh, I think those are the four things, capital liberalization, capital account flow liberalization, comes last in the sequence. So the short answer is yes, but not now. <laughs> Thank you. Yukon, do you want to? I just have two quick questions here. I agree with Nick Lardy on the point that if you remove the, the limits on deposit rates, lending rates are largely already decontrolled, and they've gone up quite a bit. If you remove the limits on, on savings rates, what the banks can pay savers, it would probably go up. And therefore, a, far, a large number of people then think interest rates are too low. But I would say that's, not, that's a partial liberalization. Because if you really want a fully liberalized financial system, you also have to 
eliminate the capital controls. You have to make the exchange rate movable. Suppose you liberalize capital controls, the issue was just raised. Money would flow and money would flow out. Okay. If interest rates are very high in China, more money will flow into China than go out. And that will cause interest rates to equalize or become closer to global rates and they'll come down. So if you actually liberalize deposit rates along with capital flows and let the so-called full equilibrium bloom, China's financial system will be like what it is in Europe, Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong. The rates will be lower. Hmm. But if you only do partial liberalization, it'll be higher. Now, financial repression. Uh, I, I agree with Nick Lardy that the system is financially repressed. It generates lots of issues. I'm not, however, totally convinced that financial repression has been that bad for China or that you can actually get rid of it so quickly. Go back to 1995 when this whole system, the whole issue became much more serious. And when governments, the policymakers are basically saying, we got to accelerate growth, we have no infrastructure, our investment rate is extraordinarily low, how am I going to get the money to invest? In 1995, revenues as a share of GDP was only 12% of GDP. It used to be 35 there's no money. So you have two choices. You go ahead and tax the people. How do you tax people? There's nobody around to tax. They're all poor. You can raise, and they did, of course, indirect taxes, VAT taxes, and it's already 17%, but it's regressive. It's also hard to collect. It's also being evaded. Okay? You can't tax your companies, large state enterprises. They're not making any money. So suppose you want to invest. The normal way you would do it is through the budget. China's budget couldn't generate it. So you have financial repression. You control interest rates. You prevent people from moving the money around too far. The penalty, of course, is on savings in the banks. But just think of this. It's essentially a tax on household savings. But it's a progressive tax. Those who have more savings in the bank pay more. It's easy to collect. It costs nothing. So it is an easy-to-collect, progressive tax, financial repression. It generates money for the government. And the question then does not, is no longer financial repression or taxes. It's a question of whether the government spent it well. And we could debate this, but I think even Nick and his writings and his books basically have done a very good job in actually showing that investment returns or generation in China have been, broadly speaking, for the past several decades pretty good. Not bad. And so that's my point. It's not really a financial repression debate. It's really a question about productivity of capital and efficiency of capital and have the government been spending it properly. Thank you. Um, all right, another round of questions. First, the woman who I spurned just a few minutes ago. Oh, just way up there. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, I'm Zhao. Currently, I'm a second-year student doing economics and politics. Um, my question is about um, the conflicts among uh, the ideological changes, political reforms, and the sufficiency of the foreign investment, because that's why I'm a student here. But I, I've also been shadowing some um, consulting investment and mergers acquisition business in local um, Chinese companies. So. Take a closer look at the reality. We can see GSA's cases recently. The government has been implementing more and more strict investments to foreign, um, let's say, 
corporational, um, multinational corporations. So I'm just wondering, would this kind of political reform, or if you like, um, the legislation reform lead to new, um, kind of new protectionism in Chinese economy? And we've also known that some more companies like Revlon and other milk powder companies for Japan, they've decided to withdraw the money from China. So how can we really provide um, a kind of um, very nice climate for foreign investment in China. So thank okay. you. Thank you. Climate for foreign investment. Um, all right, the gentleman who's, who you're right next to right now. Yes. Hello, my name is Frederick Floda from the University of Cambridge. Uh, my question relates to demographics and the middle income trap. So you touched on some of the risks of getting stuck in the trap. To what extent do you think that uh, China's unbalanced uh, demographic structure, uh, partially the result of the one-child policy, could be uh, a, a risk, and what could the government do to mitigate uh, against that? Okay, thank you. One last question. Um, all right, the, the gentleman in the middle, and then I'll come to the two of you in the next round. Hello, um, I'm Matthias. I'm a graduate student in Oxford, reading economics. Um, I have a question regarding um, the revelations two weeks ago by the International Consortium of uh, um, Investigative Journalists, who published uh, reports of 21,000 um, Chinese individuals who have um, put uh, between 1 trillion to 4 trillion of uh, US dollars to uh, the British Virgin Islands. And um, hmm. <laughs> so I was wondering how this fits into your story of um, that uh, rich Chinese individuals do not know where to put their money. So that's why they buy a property and that pushes uh, the property prices because that's a very significant amount of the GDP in China that's being put out of the country since uh, 2000. And you haven't mentioned it yet. So I, I would be interested in your views on uh, this phenomenon. Thank you. Okay, very good. Uh, yeah, I know you have questions still. Hold them in your mind. I'm going to turn to the panel now, and then I'll come back to you. So Yukon, can I ask you to begin on this round? Uh, I certainly, I, I'm not unable to judge the significance of how much money is being held overseas by Chinese, whether well-placed or, or, or not. My own impression is it's easier to get money out of China than it is to get it into China. You go to Australia, you go to London, you go to the U.S., I, uh, San Francisco, where my daughter lives, and you see that 75% of the buyers are Chinese, and they all pay cash. Okay. <laughs> They've been able to get it out. Although the rules are such that you're supposed to be able to only bring so much. The money going into China tends to come from foreign companies, others, they have to follow the rules more. So you can't carry zillions of suitcases, so you have to go through these the ration kind of situations. Nevertheless, money flows in. And you can see the numbers. The numbers are showing the capital flows into China are very, very high. Now, the interesting question is, why does money leave China? After all, interest rates are higher in China. Property prices are accelerating faster in China than the U.S. You buy stuff in China, there's not a capital gains tax or property tax. You buy in the United States, you have to pay a capital gains tax, you have to pay property tax. It's diversification. You've got to repress kind of a system so people are diversifying. And the same thing happened in Russia. When it opened up and liberalized, tons of money flowed out, not because Russia doesn't have potentially a lot of wealth, it's because you want diversification. So more money will flow out for a variety of reasons from everybody. And I think I'll just stop right there. Okay, thank you. 
David. Um, let me grab the, the first question, the part of which was about the climate for foreign investment. Um, I would first make a general point. I mean, obviously, there are different types of foreign investment, but China is interested in attracting more at the high end, high technology. When I worked in the U.S. government, and we heard this a lot from the Chinese government, why is there so little U.S. foreign investment in China? Won't, why won't the flagship U.S. firms invest there? And one of our you know, sincere answers, if you talk to the firms, is they feel that the intellectual property rights protection in China is poor, and the real kind of flagship asset of U.S. firms is primarily technology and brand names, so intellectual property rights are important. And as China's own entrepreneurs become more successful, I see them demanding better intellectual property rights protection. So I think that that's uh, uh, definitely one of the key things. And then the other thing I would mention, which just briefly re reiterates one of my early points, is that if you look at some of these key modern service sectors, like financial services, telecom, logistics, airlines, China has a very restrictive regime. It basically does not allow direct foreign investment. Financial services, you can't come into China and start a bank uh, or an insurance company. Only a very tiny amount of joint ventures allowed. So foreign firms have only about 1% of the financial services market in China. In the U.S., foreign firms have 17 to 20% of the financial services market. So I think China should uh, open up these, these markets both to get more competition, uh, but also that will certainly attract direct foreign investment. Thank you. Nicholas? I'll just make one comment on, uh, on the foreign investment environment. I think periodically we go through these periods where there's a lot of criticism of China's you know, anti-monopoly laws seem to be applying to primarily to foreign firms or, you know, crack down on corruption. It seems to be focused on foreign firms. And immediately the cry goes up, the investment environment's getting worse, it's, everything's terrible, and so forth. Um, well, when I look at the macro numbers, it, it, that, it doesn't really show up. More and more investment is going into China every year, and I think it's for two simple reasons. If you go back 20, 25 years ago, virtually all investment going into China had to be in joint ventures. Today, 80 to 85% is in wholly foreign-owned companies. It's true you can't have a wholly foreign-owned insurance company or a securities firm and other component asset management or things in the financial services sector, which is, I agree with David, is highly restricted. But in most of the rest of the economy, it's now possible to, for a foreign firm to come in and run their entire operation themselves without having to take a partner. And 80% of them seem to think that that's a better way to go. Uh, the second thing I would point out is that there has been some liberalization in the services sector. Again, if you go back 20, 25 years ago, 80% of all foreign investment going into China was in the manufacturing sector. Today, it's down to under two-fifths. About 40% is in uh, services. We have, for example, uh, uh, gas distribution. Foreign firms have a big role in gas distribution in cities to households. That used to be as a complete state monopoly. Water supply, there's a big French firm that has concessions to supply water in large parts of Pudong, Tianjin, and a number, a number of other cities. So it's not enough, it's not fast enough, but at least some, uh, some of these uh, areas that have traditionally been highly monopolized by the state and very restrictive, like uh, uh, petroleum and natural gas, some of, the, some of the downstream activities are now opening up to foreign investors. So I think the aggregate numbers would show that you know, the share that's coming in as wholly foreign-owned has been going steadily up, and the share that you know, was very heavily manufacturing 
uh, 20 years ago. More and more of it is now going into services. If China follows through on the commitments that it made at the third plenum, the share going into services will go up. And I agree with David. It will improve productivity. Productivity in the domestic services sector is extremely low. Thank you. Uh, David wants to come back on the demography and middle-income trap issue. Right. So no one addressed the demography question. China obviously has very difficult uh, demographic profile ahead with uh, population you know, peaking and starting to decline. The labor force, the working-age population is already peaked. I don't think there's a simple solution. The, the recent decisions to ease up on the one-child policy make sense, but they're not going to have probably not going to have that much effect, for, uh, frankly, and certainly not for a long time. So I would link this to our discussion of HUCO reform. You know, there you still have a lot of labor in the countryside that could move to cities. That will be the main source of urban new employment uh, in the future. And, and, and another reason why I raised the HUCO reform issue is you've got so many children in the countryside being educated who are going to move to the cities, be smart to get them to the cities sooner, educate them in the cities, uh, and create the kind of human capital that China is going to need for its future growth. Thank you. Actually, on the Hukou reform issue, there was also an earlier question, which um, perhaps I should bring up again here. And there was an intervention from a few minutes ago that suggested that we might even go further. This questioner asked, you know, spoke out in favor of preserving the Hukou reform. Now, let me just quickly pick up on that. You know, usually, nobody in their right mind goes out and says we should restrict and control mobility, factor mobility especially. But on the other hand, here in Europe, of course, we constantly talk about it's being a policy issue, a live policy issue that needs to be debated, whether we keep out the new members of the European Union or place rules on how many migrants can come in to do this, that, or the other. Most of my colleagues here, when they go to Beijing, might well travel around Beijing city streets in limos. I'm a poor LSE academic. (laughs) When I go to Beijing, I take the metro. And when I take the metro at rush hour, there are millions of people (laughs) taking the metro at the same time. So taking the Beijing metro at rush hour in the midst of a flood of people who've, been, who've come in through relaxing the Hukou system is actually an experience that unmatched anywhere else in the world. <laughs> the London underground system, nothing in comparison. <laughs> that scene with Brad Pitt in World War Z when the zombies jumped over the wall in Jerusalem... That is nothing compared to taking the Beijing metro. (laughs) Now, given that we have a constant political discussion, even in the enlightened European Union, about the control of factor mobility, David's concern, which he articulated extremely clearly, was that we shouldn't let the poor people in rural China continue to be poor. But economics tells us If you want poor people not to continue to be poor, there is no necessity that you put them in the urban area. You could also move capital into the poorer western areas, or you could draw on something geeky like the factor price equalization theorem (laughs) that says that provided you allow goods and services to trade freely, they reach the law of one price, then the factor prices, even without mobility, will also achieve parity. 
That, it seems to me, is an argument for increasing government investment in transportation infrastructure and in building up Western investment. And in light of, actually, the relatively low per capita capital stock, even though the per capita investment rate is high, there might well be an argument to encourage local provincial leaders to actually take even more of a competition to increase investment, but targeted at the West and the poorer regions of China. So I'm going to speak out in favor of preserving the Hukou system, because next summer I have to take the Beijing Metro <laughs> once again. <laughs> okay. Let's have another round of questions, another round of questions. No one in this group here has really... Okay, gentleman in the blue jumper. Yeah, I'm Al Woods from Samas. Um, about 10 years ago, I remember being in the lecture hall with uh, um, Professor Kwa's lectures a <laughs> long time ago. Um, yeah, I was just uh, wanted to ask about, earlier we were talking about how to move from an investment to um, consumption-driven um, growth, and a lot of that seemed predicated on the idea that you'd be able to um, have governments paying for uh, like social welfare to free up. Um, people's like personal savings um, but obviously recently we've touched on it a little bit um, like there's a massive uh, especially local government um, debt crisis um, looming and I just wanted to know we've talked a lot about market reform but what about the fiscal reform that might be required to um, address this okay thank you fiscal reform Fei Jin uh, up in front here the third row Fei could you put up your hand so that the Thank you, Danny. Another, well, poor as the academic. <laughs> uh, so it's noted um, in uh, David's opening presentation that China needs more innovation. So my quick question to the panel is where do you think innovation uh, should take place? What kind of innovation exactly? What, what should be the driving forces? Uh, when I talk to my colleagues in China who engage actively in Innovative activities or innovation in general, very often uh, it's interpreted as equivalent to technological innovation. But at the same time, right, it, there is increasing awareness that uh, the modern uh, service sector should be, well, takes a very important role yeah. in the future. Yeah. So, uh, which means that process innovation, service innovation, business model innovation might be even more relevant. But for the moment, there hasn't been a, a lot of resources into, well, put into, okay, I'll stop yeah. here. Thank, Thank you. you, Faye. Um, two more questions. So the gentleman who's got his hand up now and then the woman in front of him. So last two questions on this round. Roger Garside, again, thank you, Chairman, for recognizing me twice in a day. It's excessive. Um, I'm sorry, but I want to drag politics into a, a, a long session, which has been, until now, politics-free, almost entirely politics-free. Um, the uh, reform agenda set out in China 2030 by the World Bank and the State Reform Council um, and the agenda set out uh, elegantly by Mr. Dr. Lari today um, have, uh, as I see it, uh, very far-reaching political consequences. Um, they would, if fully implemented, undermine the one-party dictatorship. The reason why they haven't been done up to now is not through lack of intellectual understanding, it is 
um, it, it is political. It, um, uh, setting out a list of um, reforms that are desirable, as the third plenum did, um, is, does not, to my mind, indicate a political will to implement them. Um, uh, perhaps the panel knows of some reasons to believe that the political will is there. Um, I have yet to see it. Have they seen it? Thank you. And then the woman just in front of you. So if you just hand the microphone. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my question is very basic. Uh, as Professor Nicholas mentioned that in the future there must be um, free capital um, free, cap- free capital flow in China. So, um, but according to the theory of impossible trinity, as we know, uh, the fixed exchange rate, um, the free capital flow, and uh, the independent uh, monetary policy. As we know, China already had uh, an independent uh, in monetary po- uh, policy and uh, relatively fixed, uh, uh, f- fixed uh, exchange rate. So that means in the future, China must uh, give up one of these. I mean, because there will be a free, um, free capital flow. So um, do you think which one China will give up? And uh, where there... If that happened, what what is the disadvantage of this? Yeah, that's my question. Okay. Thank you. Thank very you very much. much. Can I turn to Nicholas first on this round? Well, I'll take the last question first. Uh, in my um, in my previous answer, I tried to indicate that there should be a sequence as you move towards more liberalization of the capital economy. And let me just put in a footnote: I'm not necessarily a big advocate of completely liberalizing the capital account. There might be some residual things we could talk about. But remember, the sequence was. Uh, domestic interest rate liberalization, a more flexible exchange rate, and a deeper, uh, more liquid capital market before you start uh, uh, decontrolling capital flows very much. So I think that uh, my answer to the Trinity uh, question is China would have to give up uh, the kind of more controlled exchange rate regime that it has had uh, really for the last uh, 60 years. So they'd have to move towards a much more flexible Exchange rate, what are the consequences? I think they're mostly positive. I think it would help on resource allocation. It would give China more uh, ability to adjust to external shocks. And so I think it would be a plus uh, compared to the situation China has been in uh, in the recent past. Uh, let, can I take a shot at, yeah, the, at the political will? Absolutely. Um, th- this is a very interesting question. I would just say that... Uh, I think you really have to consider what are the alternatives. And here, maybe David and I have a view that's a little bit different from Yukon's. I do think, and I tried to make it clear, that if China moves down this path of economic reform, I think they can sustain fairly rapid economic growth on average over the next five years or so. My alternative view is that if they try to continue on the current trajectory, Uh, the possibility of heading to disaster rises considerably. Uh, You know, people that say, oh, there's nothing wrong with investing at 49 or 50 or 51 percent, and I always say, well, what about 10 years from now when it's at 65 percent, and then 10 years after that and it's at 85 percent and consumption is converging Mm -hmm. towards zero? How does that work? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that... uh, the party really faces a choice. Uh, if they want to maintain 
uh, if they want to have an opportunity to remain in control, I think they're going to have to deliver continued high economic growth. I think they recognize certainly Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, Li Keqiang especially, who's been so articulate on this, uh, realize that they're not going to be able to, to do it uh, on the current model. And they have, you know, they still have nine years left in office. And the way I sometimes put it, you know, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao talked about some of these reforms, but they didn't implement them. And the way I put it is, at the end, they just ran out the clock. They figured, well, we're not going to hit a complete disaster in the next few years, so we'll, we'll give up. Mm-hmm. I think the incentives for uh, Mr. Xi and Mr. Li are quite different. Uh, if all goes well for them, they will be in office for another nine years. I don't think they have any confidence that the current growth model is sustainable for nine years. So I think they will push ahead on some of these economic reforms. I think they will be willing to uh, give up some of the controls. I think it's a change in the role of the state. I think it's already a market economy. But the state should be doing some of these things we've been talking about, provide more modern services to the population and not trying to micromanage, uh, for example, broad swaths of the consumer sector, not uh, in the service sector in particular, not trying to maintain a high degree of ownership of, of, of enterprises. I think that needs to go more private. And the state can can improve its regulatory role. China is not a very efficient regulator, in my opinion. Uh, in many areas, they don't have enough expertise, manpower. The Chinese state is too small. Uh, the government bureaucracy, including teachers, doctors, hospital workers, everything, is about 30 per thousand. You know, France is 95, the United States is 75, I think the UK is something around, something way north of 50. This is a very, very small state, and it needs to become more efficient and concentrate on different kinds of things. Excellent. David. Uh, I'm going to pick up from there and then move on to what was the second question. So um, many of my Chinese friends have described the early period of the Xi Jinping era as signaling, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, signaling left in order to turn right, okay? And what that phrase means is clearly this leadership has taken a pretty firm line on domestic security issues and also regional security issues. So there's no hint of political liberalization coming from this new leadership. But one thinking is that that provides the space to then seriously accelerate economic reform. Now, I think your question was spot on, that some of these reforms we're talking about clearly challenge important interests. So when I talk about opening up the service sectors, those big incumbent state enterprises, they're connected to important families in China. And people move from the government into these enterprises. So it's not a simple thing. Or hukou reform, you know, most of the reforms I mentioned have at least some implicit political dimension. But then I think in, in the short run, I tend to agree with Nick that, that, that the leadership seems to understand the importance. You know, they, they, the leadership agrees with me and Nick that you can't invest 50% of GDP, that this is not a sustainable model. And they're trying to make changes that will generate more productivity growth, more efficient investment, ultimately more consumption. So I think for the next five to ten years, it's going to be extremely interesting to see if they can pull that off. In the longer term, it strikes me that no country has really made it to high income without having some kind of political liberalization. So I think for, you know, for all the 
Chinese citizens here, I would you know, say, I look around the world and I don't see countries that make it to high income you know, without some kind of political liberalization. Doesn't mean you're gonna look like the United Kingdom or the United States, but it means you're gonna have more popular, deci- popular participation in decision making. And then I would link that to the question about innovation, you know, what kind of innovation, you know, clearly, uh, you know, in most market economies, the innovation is primarily driven by private entrepreneurs and private sector. So it's nice to have certain types of government policies to support, but it largely has to come from the private sector. The theme of a lot of the things I'm talking about is more openness and competition, which I think will, will ultimately lead to more, to more innovation and productivity growth. Thank you, David. Uh, Yukon. Two quick responses. The, the question of, of local, of, of public finance budget, uh, which is a very good question. If you go back to the third plenum, you will notice that the budget reform and fiscal reform occupies many, many sections, far more than the financial. And it goes back to the point I made. China's budget is too small. You can't finance the things they want to do through the budget. You're pushing it out through the banks. It's not very good. It distorts things. You've got to change this. So look for fiscal reforms and the nature of fiscal reforms to be a big issue in the coming years. Political economic liberalization. This is clearly in the third plenum. They created two committees, one to deal with the economy, one to deal with security. And many people thought security was foreign security. It's not. It's domestic. It's the fact that instability or mass incidents or protests have accelerated enormously and they cost so much. Uh, Domestic security costs more than foreign military expenditures. Most people focus on the submarines and the planes out there. The real issue in China is the internal security. Now, second, it is really interesting that Xi Jinping is the head of both committees. Most people had expected somebody else to be the head of these two committees. We still don't know the implications because it could be bad, it could be good. In some sense, he's already the head of everything. So why does he need to be formally ahead of these two committees? And the answer, I think, is he sees his legacy as having taken responsibility for this and done something. The question is, do what? Now, by taking responsibility and do something, he's actually already signaled that there is something wrong. And the issue is going to be shown up in the relationship between Beijing and localities. It starts with the issue that security before used to be a, a responsibility of one of the standing committee members. And a standing committee member, because he's a standing committee member, basically does it in isolation. And the first thing you notice is it's no longer a responsibility of a standing committee member. It's a responsibility of someone below the standing committee. That's different. And there's a reason for that difference. That same difference is actually duplicated at the local level because all the protests and the riots and things you hear about are handled by security people in the local areas. And again, that particular group or committee was handled or chaired by a security person. It no longer is. It is actually chaired or handled by a party official. At the top, it's therefore Xi Jinping taking over and saying the party is going to handle this in some way and the local level its way. But what's going to happen, I don't know, but it always, but you already realize that they realized that something had to change. It wasn't working. So this old idea was I can economically liberalize and all I have to do is to make sure that the political situation doesn't get out of hand and that's fine. It's no longer the model. 
Well, we do not know what the motto will be. Thank you, Yukon. Oh, thank you. Personal endorsement from the member of the audience. All right, final round. Okay. Uh, okay. Can I actually? I'll, I'll take two questions. Ariadne and then Frank. Go ahead. Uh, over here. Uh, my name is Zairat. I'm a second-year student in economics at LSE. And first, I'd like to apologize to uh, Professor Huang Yukong because I'm going to assume that the interest rates are low in my question. And uh, the question is that there is a view that the problem with the low interest rates is that it is causing a value-destroying investment. For example, uh, the investment which is reflected in the plans to build uh, a skyscraper in China, in China Every, every five days for the next 10 years. And uh, the question is whether the obsession with the high growth rates in Beijing, which probably drives the obsession with infrastructural development and inability of Beijing to uh, increase the interest rates, is it hindering the growth itself? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Final question, Frank. Thank you, Danny. Uh, first, uh, I'm from the organizing committee, uh, but I'm not rep oh, representing views of our society. Very much. So my question is: uh, now, nowadays, a lot of uh, Chinese pundits describe uh, U.S. rebalancing towards Asia and the discussion of setting up the TPP without China as part of a broader strategy to contain China. So, what's the real uh, U.S. policy towards China? And What's the future outlook okay. of U.S.-China collaboration in terms of economic collaborations? Thank you very much for that question. Um, can we go in the order that we began with, David, and then Nicholas, and then Yukon? Okay, so in the interest of efficiency, I'll just say something about the second question, which, which I have some experience with. Um, the way I see this is that you know, the United States and China you know, have a lot of economic integration, but I see the relationship is stalled over the last 10 years. You know, since China joined WTO, you know, there's been certain development of integration. China exports a lot to the U.S. The U.S. is the biggest provider of direct foreign investment to the whole world, provides about 25% of FDI to the whole world. The U.S. has a tiny amount of FDI in China. Okay? So not a lot of FDI. It, starting to be some FDI from China into the U.S. China owns a massive amount of treasury bonds. I would describe this as a somewhat imbalanced, unsatisfactory relationship where there hasn't been much progress. I've been involved in many of the negotiations on the economic side, uh, and I would give my team a rather low grade uh, for, for progress in, in negotiating more integration. So I see the TPP and also the U.S. effort to negotiate a free trade agreement with Europe as showing kind of frustration with lack of progress in negotiating more integration with China and then moving ahead with let's go ahead and get like-minded countries to develop a high-quality free trade agreement. Now, my own personal view is that China should be welcome. The we, U.S. should encourage China to join, you know, for example, TPP, or we could have a separate U.S.-China bilateral agreement. We have agreed to negotiate a bilateral investment treaty. That would address a lot of the issues I brought up. You know, China would have to open up 
most of those service sectors I mentioned uh, in, in order to have that. So I would encourage China to take seriously the idea that we need to negotiate deeper integration between the two economies and that that ideally would be in a global context. So the ideal thing would be a global trade deal, but frankly, the United States got frustrated with the lack of progress and you know, we, we just don't see big developing countries um, making enough of an effort to negotiate a global deal, and therefore we're moving ahead with, with the regional deals, which are definitely suboptimal. Thank you. Nicholas? Um, I'll be very brief. I think uh, David's put his fingers on some of the problems. I, I would just put a slightly optimistic gloss on it. I do think there has been a fundamental change, uh, or at least I would argue, I perceive there's been a fundamental change in China in moving away from thinking the TPP was a scheme as part of, you know, excluding China from global access to global markets or global integration. I think it's fairly clear now from Xi Jinping's visit with President Obama at Sunnylands and lots of other indicators that China is reevaluating that uh, position. They may uh, actually seek to join uh, the discussions on the TPP, which I think would be a very, very positive sign. Uh, and I think uh, I guess maybe a former official couldn't say this. Uh, I think maybe the Chinese are coming re- coming to realize that there's less to the U.S. pivot to Asia than was originally uh, described. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thank so you. It seems to be less threatening now. <laughs> All right. You call. Uh, let, me, let me just clarify by what I mean by rebalancing unbalanced growth. If you look at the diagram, all these countries, including the United States, when they sort of hit the bottom, it flattens out. It doesn't actually go up consumption share of GDP significantly for decades. So when people say, is China rebalancing? When is it going to occur? Is it going to occur next year? Sorry, it's not going to be a yearly phenomenon. It's going to be four or five or ten. Now, what this means, I think China is fairly close, but if you simulate it out, my guess is that 2020 the consumption GDP line is going to actually go up, but it's more or less hitting the bottom and flat. But that also means that the investment share of GDP is not going to go 50, 60, 70. It's going to stay at 45 or 6%. So I, for me, the question is whether that 45, 46%, not 60, whatever, is going to be better quality than it has or can be. I do think higher interest rates will help improve that. So I'm not against that. The second point I'd like to say is, we really don't know how to measure the rate of return or productivity of China's investment. I don't have this graph here, but I was running rates of return i cores for all the 10 biggest middle-income countries over the last 10 or 15 years, to, and lagging and whatever, just to get a sense of whether rates of return in China have declined and fallen. It turns out that that simple little diagram, China's productivity rates of return on investment is much better than everybody else and much more stable. I don't see that. Now, if there is a problem, it's occurred largely during the global financial crisis, the big stimulus, when the last three or four or five percentage points of investment shot up. And it's plausible to argue that returns fell. But is that a structural issue or a cyclical issue? Because if it's a cyclical issue, it'll go away. If it's a structural issue, it's something different. Now, here I'm going to differ with Danny a little bit. If you break down the rates of return on investment by region, the coast, the center, and the west, 
What you see actually is the efficiency of investment in the coast has never deteriorated in the last 10 or 15 years. You actually show it doesn't deteriorate anywhere actually. But what you do see is the rate of return to investment in the far west is much lower than it is in the coast, as you would expect. So if you actually invest more in the interior over time, which is what's been happening, your overall return is lowering because your regional proportions have changed. So the issue then becomes, is it worth it? Because as Danny mentioned, when you invest in the interior, the interior is now growing faster than the coast last three or four years. The question is, what's the cost of that? And the cost of that is regional GDP investment ratios are 50, 60, 70, 80 percent, whereas along the coast, 30, 40, 50. And that, to me, is a policy debate about equality, rebalancing regional splits, and the trade-off is lower returns. There are many examples about skyscrapers inefficient. Here's a ghost town, very bad. Here's a road, no traffic, no doubt. No doubt also there's been more of those in the last three or four years than they were in the previous. But in terms of the macro indicators, it's not a fundamental change. If you go to the China 2030 report, you'll see that China's total factor productivity increases are significantly above everybody else's for the last 10 or 15 years. Now, we can't tell what's happened in the last three or four or five because it's too short term. But we have no evidence, in fact, that despite low interest rates or this or that, that China's productivity or return on investment is worse than others. But that doesn't mean it hasn't been falling. That's a different question. Falling doesn't mean that it isn't higher than everybody else's. It means it's becoming lower. It still doesn't tell you whether it's too low. It just tells you it's a bit lower. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Yukon. I'm afraid that we have come to the end of this session. The timekeeper says that I will be punished if I let this go on anymore, even though obviously I would like to and you would enjoy the discussion as well. So, but to just finish up the, this panel, could you join me in thanking our speakers for most interesting... <laughs>